1: Merry Christmas. <laughs> My name is Randy. I'm one of the weak pastors here at, uh, at New Hope. You will notice as you read through Scripture that the story of the Nativity, you find it in two of the Gospels. You find it in Matthew, and then you find it in Luke. Mark just kinds of jumps right over it, and then there's John. The Nativity actually is in John. But boy, does it ever look different. John opens his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John actually starts right out saying, Jesus is king. Remember the first Sunday of Advent, we uh, we lit the, the candle of the lion, because Jesus is king. Here we see John saying the very same thing. Jesus is king. From the very start, John says, Jesus was born in conflict. But the conflict was the conflict between light and darkness. There was darkness in the world. So Jesus came as the light And the thing about the light is that it dispels the darkness. It throws it away. Darkness does not overcome light. Light overcomes darkness. Jesus overcomes. He is the king. Now we live in the middle of that darkness. So God had to send a witness. We keep on reading in John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to Everyone was coming into the world. So Jesus came into the world, shining his light in the middle of the darkness that we were a part of. God sent a witness. The witnesses identified John, John the Baptist. John told us about Jesus so that we could believe. Now, if you remember, one of the first things that John said when Jesus came was, he looked at his disciples and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." The second Sunday, we or the third Sunday, we would lit the candle of the Lamb because Jesus came as the sacrifice for our sins. John told us. He came as a witness, bearing testimony to the light in the middle of the darkness. The problem is, we didn't listen to John. Again, looking back at John chapter 1, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. So Jesus came, John witnessed to Jesus coming as the light, but the problem was we ignored John. We ignored that word. We didn't know Jesus. We ended up actually rejecting Jesus. We disowned God and we walked away from him. We preferred the darkness to the light. We rejected him. So God came and made us an incredible offer. John chapter 1 again. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. The reality is we were part of God's family and we walked away from it, but he didn't let it end there. He hunted us down. He came after us. And when he came after us, He did it in the person of Jesus. He offered us an olive branch the second Sunday. We lit the candle of the olive branch. God came to us to rebuild that relationship with us so that we could become his children again. All we have to do is believe. Now John finishes up this passage in verse 14. The Word. He talked about the Word in verse 1. The Word that was God. The Word that was with God. The Word that created everything. The Word. Jesus. God himself. Became flesh. He became one of us. He dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came and he lived with us. He lived with us so that he could bring us back to God. He became one with us so we could become one with him. And as a result, living in darkness, seeing the light, hearing the witness, even when we rejected that witness, God accepted us and he called to us and he said, just believe, just believe. See the glory of the Son. See his grace offered to us freely. And the truth that he brings. This is Christmas. This is the story of Jesus who comes to
0: us from God. Today we need to believe.
2: Hello, uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. Um, Randy just walked us through all the things that Jesus did for us. You know, we've talked these last few weeks about him mean, the lamb and that he's the roaring lion, that he's the olive branch, that he is the the dove that, that changes us, that he is our savior, right? Um but I want, to tell, I want to tell a little bit different story today. I want to tell you a story that's from roughly 700 years before Jesus being born. And it's an important story because it's part of the life of Jesus. And today we're talking about the life of Jesus and who he is and all that he did. And this actually comes from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah uh, 52, 13 through 15, and Isaiah 53. It says, See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man, and he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told, and they will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief." Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, he bore the sins of many. And interceded for rebels. I want to pull out eight concepts of everything we just read. Now, there are more prophecies than just eight in what we just read. See, you see, that's written 700 years before Jesus, but do you see how much that resembles what happened with Jesus? I want to focus on eight things, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The first is that his message would be rejected, and it was. Just like Randy said, he was—he came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. He would be pierced. That's number two. And he was. He was crucified. He was pierced through his hands and his feet and with a, with a spear in his side. He would be beaten. And he was. With a cat of nine tails whip. Over and over again. He was beaten with hands as well. He would lay down his life willingly. He says that, He says that. Jesus says, I I will lay my life down willingly, and I will take it up. He would remain silent among his accusers. And he does when they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says nothing. He says things like, if you say I am, what do you say that I am? But he never says it. He just stands there. He's numbered with the guilty. He's crucified with a, a thief on either side of him. Guilty men on either side of him. But he sits in the middle, innocent. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's true. Joseph gives him his tomb. A rich man gives him his tomb. And he's buried in the tomb of a rich man. And then he would raise from the dead and he would see his followers. He would see his seed. That's what Isaiah says. And we see that. Jesus is raised from the dead. And over 500 people, over 500 eyewitness accounts say they saw him with their own two eyes. What do we do with that? I picked eight, and there's probably like 15 or 20 in that passage, right? I picked eight because I saw a video here a while back, and I was really happy. Uh, I saw Andrea, uh, our high school leader. She played this. uh, she, She talked about this in her class. But what is the likelihood of one man fulfilling eight prophecies with 700 years between the events? What do you think? Here's what it is. It's if you took quarters and you piled them four feet deep across the state of Texas, touching every square inch of Texas, and you marked one of those quarters with a sharpie, and then you blindfolded someone and you airdropped them into the middle of Texas and said, okay, on your first try, you got to pick up the sharpie marked quarter. That is the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies, though. He, filled over, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. That's more quarters than the United States could hold, right? Four feet deep. That's the likelihood. Now, why did I pick these? Why did I pick these prophecies? Because if you notice, all these prophecies that I laid out, they're mostly historical account other than the resurrection. Most scholars would agree that Jesus Christ was a real living person. Any scholar worth their salt will. Most scholars are going to agree that Jesus Christ was crucified at the hands of the Roman government. Even Bart Ehrman, the great skeptic, believes that Jesus was a real person and died at the hands of the Roman government. And if you look, all of these prophecies are that and that alone. Seven of the eight. The eighth, though, is the one that takes a little bit extra effort to understand. It's that he rose from the grave after he died. And over 500 people saw that happen. And those 500 people, many of them laid down their lives professing what they saw. Guys, today in a court of law, if you have two to three witnesses, eyewitnesses of an account, that's a verdict. We've got over 500 for the life of Jesus Christ after his death. That he was resurrected, that he lives And not just that, not just 500 people, that within just a couple hundred years, Rome goes from being the biggest pagan nation on earth, worshiping its many, many gods, and they get rid of all that, and they say, no, we're going to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. And from Rome, the world, the biggest religion in the world. So the reason I'm saying this, the reason I'm laying out these, these facts for you is because I want you to to kind of wrestle with that. I want you to kind of wrestle with that and say, I, I always hear people say this couldn't be, this couldn't be true, that, that there can't be a Jesus, that, that Jesus didn't exist, or Jesus didn't raise from the grave. But when you look at these stats, and when you think about the fact that all the scholars are in agreement, that, that he was real, and that he did at least die at the hands of the Roman government, it's almost impossible that that happened in the first place. It's almost impossible To think of the odds that Jesus overcame to do all of these things. But he did them. And so while Randy talked to us about light overcoming darkness. I'm talking to you about the God that overcomes all the odds that are against him. And so this Christmas season. What I want you to ask yourself. Is Is he worthy? Are the facts in his favor? Are the statistics good enough for you? Because here's the deal: he's either the God of the universe or he's a liar and a crazy man, and you have to pick. And if he's the God of the universe, then we've got to give our whole lives to him. And Jason's gonna to talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. But that's what I want you wrestling with just for a little bit here. Who is this Jesus? What do I believe about him? Is it true? And am I gonna give my life to him? And I'd like-
0: so I have the privilege tonight of telling you a story about a man who just happened to, he stopped by a doctor's office, was not really planning on it, but he went in, the doctor's, you know, talking to him, and he's like, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he's like, well, I just, I think I'm a moth. Okay, well, let's run some tests. Let's check this out. So he did some tests, you know, what's hurting, what's wrong, you know, do you have a temperature, you know, all those different things. And comes back and he's like, sir, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with you at all. I mean, I don't, wh- what's wrong? And he goes, well, I think I'm a moth. And he goes, well, sir, I, I don't think you're a moth because all the tests show that you're a human. You're, you're a real person. There's no way you're a moth. So Why did you really even come in? He goes, well, because your light was on. Yeah, let it sink in, let it sink in. <laughs> You know, you get, you know, this beautiful compare and contrast out of John chapter 1. You get this beautiful exposition of, you know, hundreds of prophecies. And, I, and then you get, yeah. So, sorry about that. You'll understand why here in a few moments. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Say that you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. And you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, but instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. We've been lighting the candles of Advent over the last four Sundays. Tonight, we're recognizing the fifth candle, the Christ candle because he is our savior and so i want to talk about that matthew chapter 5 verse that's part of the sermon on the mount kind of one of the first times that jesus really taught deeply in public and the assumption of those verses is that we live in a dark and decaying world that jesus says you're the salt you're the preservation you're the you're the the agent of keeping the corruption from going too far. That we are the salt. We're stemming that tide of corruption in our culture, and our world, across time. Salt is, is a preservative. It is a silent impact. It's an influence. It's our influence of a godly life affecting our culture from the inside out. Salt preserves, but it also creates a thirst. I mean, you can't eat too many Lay's potato chips and not have to have something to drink, right? Salt creates a thirst, and that thirst is for the light. That Jesus says, we're the light of the world. You see, the light is not just a a quiet influence in the way we live, but the light is a tangible expression. It's an outward expression of the gospel in our lives in the world. That the light is not a, a silent influence within us, The light is an open and blatant influence in our world for all to see. You see, Jesus was setting up the the expectation that in our culture, in a dead, dying, and depraved world, a world of darkness, that we are the salt that prevents the decay from going too far. But we are also the light, because salt on its own right, if you salt a, a piece of meat to preserve it, right? Does it transform the meat? No, it just keeps it good, right? Light transforms. So when we flip on the light in a dark room, the darkness is transformed into what we see, that we can see what is around us because light is a visible transformation. And so Jesus is saying, yes, you are the salt, that we are called to not just keep our world from decaying further into corruption, but we are the light we speak transformative power into our culture because of Jesus. And so that inward expression, that outward expression, go hand in hand. And Jesus is our savior. And we, you know, we've, we've used this theme all of the last four weeks. And tonight you've heard it numerous times. Jesus is the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter five, he turns that around and he says, yes, but you are the light of the world. Because I live in you, you are now the light, you are now the salt, you are my agent of change in the world. You see, Jesus, God knew that we were going to be living because of sin in a dark and decaying world. And he had the plan for us, his people, his children, to be that which prevents the corruption and that which transforms We are that plan moving forward. And the language is emphatic in these verses. That there is only one salt. There is only one light that this world will ever receive. And that is Jesus in us to the world. And so that brings us back to them, our vision statement, our mission statement of new hope. That we want to, you all remember the words? What are the three words? Live, love, and go. Like who? Like Jesus. Because we are to be Jesus in every corner of your world. You see, what God has set up is that being the light of the world is not reserved for the famous preachers and evangelists and the influencers influencers of our day because those people will never have the chance to touch the lives that you touch each and every day. It doesn't matter if you've got... 10 followers or 10 million followers. You are an influencer. You are the light of the world, the salt of this earth. And so we can go and be like Jesus in every corner of each of our own worlds. But sometimes I have to confess that oftentimes myself and I think the church, I think we're really good at being salt. We're really good at stemming that tide of corruption, going, here is the truth, here is the the morality and the ethics that we will stand by, we will live by, and we will be the salt. But oftentimes, that tangible, that outward expression of being the light, I know it gets muted in my life way too often. That I want, you know, the way I live, that silent influence in the culture, I want that to be enough, and, and I don't say it enough. I don't let my light shine as that last verse, verse 15 says that in the same way to let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Our good deeds, the way we speak should be a part of that. And so I want to be clear that being the light in our world does not mean that we're only trying to affect people's behavior. Because if all we do is we go forth and we, we say, you know, this is the way we need to live and all of that is just outward expression. Now it's important, right? That's part of being the salt is we're preventing the decay of our world. But if we don't speak the light, if we don't speak the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, salt only prevents the decay. Light. The goodness, the gospel of Jesus is what transforms the decay from the inside out. We are his plan. He is our savior. He came as a baby. He came as the lamb. He is the king of kings. He is our mediator, our sacrifice. He is all of these things wrapped up in a tiny little baby, a humble little package, if you will, to give to us. Our light, our light comes into us so that we can be the light of the world. So tonight, at the close of the service, we come now to the Christ candle. And we're going to do things a little differently. For you longtime New Hopers, we're going to do things a little bit different tonight. That we are going to, you know, we always say this is kind of a, you know, the way it works, but we want to see this very visibly tonight. That we want to see the light of Jesus expand to our world. That as we have a couple of volunteers come forward, we're going to light our candles off of the Christ candle, and then we're going to take the light of the world back to those of us in this room. God came with a plan. His plan of salvation for each and every one of us, and then his plan for us to be his agent of change in our world going forward. Isaiah 9:2 says that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Jesus is that light in us. We are that light in our world. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast.